welcome to Your Best Riding Life, an extension of the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Riders Conference held in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. I'm your host, Linda Goldfarb. Each week, I bring you tips and strategies from experts in the writing and publishing industry to help you excel in your craft. I'm so glad you're listening in. Today, we're talking about writing narrative nonfiction and historical fiction with our fabulous guest, Dr. Craig Von Busick. Oh, good to have you here, Craig. Linda, it is a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Craig. He's an award-winning author and popular speaker. He holds an MA in journalism from Regent University. His book, I Am Cyrus, Harry S. Truman and the Rebirth of Israel, won the 2020 Sela Award for Nonfiction and was a finalist for the Truman Award by the Truman Presidential Library. It is so good to have him here, and I know you will enjoy every single moment. Oh, that's why we have this program, to have individuals like you on, Craig, and I am excited about what you're going to be offering today. Well, but, me too. It's, it's an honor. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I have that, but I have this little caveat moment here, especially <laughs> with my first time guests. What I want to do is I want to take a look, just a moment, just a peek around the curtain into the inside life of our expert, which of course today is you. So, Craig, I'm going to ask you, share something we won't find in your bio. Well, I thought about this, and uh, the one thing that was really a tremendous early experience for me was that when I was 14 years old, I was a newspaper carrier in Erie, Pennsylvania, right on Lake Erie, and uh, they had a contest that was sponsored by Parade Magazine. And it was the contest was whoever sold the most newspaper subscriptions would be able to go on a two week all expenses paid trip, one week in Belgium and one week in Germany. And I won that trip. I sold more newspaper subscriptions than anyone else in my city. And so uh, there at eight, you know, in eighth grade, 14 years old. Uh, I flew to New York City and joined about 130 other kids from all across the country. And uh, we had chaperones provided by Parade Magazine. And we got on a huge 747 and we flew across the ocean. And we spent a week in Belgium, you know, and we went to all the castles. And, you know, like that movie uh, about Bruges, we went to, to Bruges and we were in Brussels. And then we, after a week, we went to West Germany. Now, that was when it was still West and East Germany. And so we went to Cologne and to Bonn. And uh, it was really an amazing time for a kid in eighth grade. And I'll never forget it. So uh, that would, it's not something I put in my bio, but it is one of the great memories of my life. And I, I do feel it's kind of fantastic that you used to sell newspaper subscriptions and now look at your career. How amazing is that? Yeah, I didn't stray very far from the written word, which is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. Well, thank you for sharing that little insight to your life. I agree with you. That is something any eighth grader would say, wow, or <laughs> I'm sorry, 
that's something that any 40 year old would say, wow. (laughs) Exactly. Anyone would say, wow. Everyone would say, wow. So what a blessing. How wonderful. Well, today, Craig, we're looking at writing narrative nonfiction and historical fiction. And this, folks, this is going to be really a part one. We're talking about the narrative nonfiction and historical fiction today. And then the next time that we have Craig on, we're going to be talking about writing biographies and memoirs. And you're really going to want to soak these up because he has such amazing content to share with us. Can you give our listeners some basics in regards to narrative nonfiction? Yes, narrative nonfiction is a growing uh, popular genre. And basically, to understand what it means, it is going back into the story of an actual event, digging through and doing all the research, and then writing that story using fictional techniques, but it's all nonfiction. And so you're telling a true story, but the way people read it, they read it as though it is a novel. And so my uh, book uh, called Nobody Knows, the Harry T. Burley story, was mostly narrative nonfiction. Now, because I was telling it um, and writing it in a novel-type form, there were a couple things where I had to kind of cross the line over into what we're going to talk about next which is historical fiction. So I'll hold on that until we talk about that. But for the most part, uh, the Nobody Knows book about Harry T. Burley, who was one of America's first great African-American composers, was all based on real-life events and then told, though, in the same kind of narrative fashion that you would see in a fiction novel. And so that's one of the reasons why it is so popular. Um, And it really began in what was called the new journalism wave of the 1950s and the 1960s. And so one of the first great authors to come out of that school was Truman Capote. And he wrote the book In Cold Blood. And if you read that book, it reads as though you're reading a novel, but it's all true. And so he, along with Tom Wolfe, not Thomas Wolfe, the earlier author, but Tom Wolfe of the New Journalism School, he wrote the, the Right Stuff, which became the movie The Right Stuff, about the Mercury astronauts, who first American astronauts who first went into orbit or around the world in a rocket. Right. And so that was all a true story. But when you read it, it's like you're reading a novel. And so it's a really wonderful and creative, fun genre that is growing and growing in popularity. I'm writing down a few of the titles that you that you showed as examples, too, because I know this is something my husband, Sam, would truly enjoy reading. So I'm I'm making some notes here, Craig. This is this is (laughs) all good. good. All right. So you had mentioned historical fiction. Well, with that, what is the same or different about uh, historical fiction from narrative nonfiction? Yeah, what uh, what happens in historical fiction is that the setting is taken from history. And so the historical fiction author will do a lot of research about the setting, the historical events, the context of what is going on in the book, 
but then they will either take a historical character and create fictional events for them, or they will create a fictional character and put them into the historical setting. And so, again, this is a very popular genre, and people really love this type of thing because, you know, it's kind of a what-if type of question that's being answered. What if this were to happen, or what if that were to happen? And so the author has a lot more leeway in historical fiction than they do in narrative nonfiction. In narrative nonfiction, you want it to be 100% according to the historical facts. And so I have another book that is uh, in the process of, we're trying to find a uh, publisher for that book, but it is called Nina, and it is the story of a survivor of the Holocaust. And I actually uh, did in-depth interviews with Nina herself, uh, who I met in Israel in 2003. At the time, I was working for CBN.com as a writer and producer. And I had been allowed by the Israeli Bureau of Tourism. They had paid my way, another one of those all-expenses-paid trips that, mm. that I've been able to go on. They had paid my way for a week-long tour of Israel with a group that is the Israeli version of the Red Cross, which is called mm. Armed, and it's the uh, American Red Magen David Adom, which is the Red Star of David. And so they are, uh, you know, a humanitarian organization. And so I was able to travel with them at the height of that intifada back then because that was when all the bus bombings were happening and and Westerners were not traveling to Israel and tourism is one of the, the top parts of the Israeli economy. And so it was really causing a problem. And so they asked for Western journalists to come to Israel and then to go back and to write articles to encourage people to travel to Israel. So the very first night... Um, on the tour, the tour guide had us all stand to say why we were on the trip. And I said what I just told you. And afterwards, this little, short, beautiful woman who was about, I don't know how old, 78 or something at that point, she had pure white hair, and she was about five foot one, maybe. <laughs> mm. And she walked, walked over to me after we were done with the dinner and with a very thick Eastern European accent, she said, I think your audience would be interested in my story. And I kind of patted her on the head and said, oh, that would be lovely. Yeah, that would be nice. Not realizing that her story is one of the most amazing tales of survival I've ever heard in my life. Mm -hmm. And she started to unpack that for me the next day at lunch. And I, you know, after like three days of her telling me the story and I was recording the whole thing uh, there every every lunch hour or sometimes on the bus <laughs> as we're going from place to place. And so the second to last day I went and her daughter was with her on the on the tour. And I said, has anybody written her story? Because I'd really like to write this as a narrative nonfiction book. And she said, well, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> ah. And I, I explained to her what it was. And so um, we waited a couple of years and then they gave me permission and I flew out to California 
and I interviewed her for another week. And from those interviews, I wrote this book and I kept it according to the historical events. And so that book is pure narrative nonfiction. Whereas my book, Nobody Knows, is mostly nonfiction because I didn't have Harry Burley to talk to. In order to tell the story, I had to fill in some gaps that were lost to history. And so I filled them in the best I could with the research that I had. So I tried to make it as close to historically accurate as possible, but I didn't know for sure that it was Burley's story. And so that's where it kind of straddled the fence between narrative nonfiction and historical fiction. But as often as possible, I tried to make it truly narrative nonfiction. This is good. Craig, one of the things I'd like for you to share with our listeners, and maybe you can, you know, you format it the way that you want to do this, but I'd really like to know, are there some things with, you know, pure narrative nonfiction that you would say, okay, here's some things, do not do this, or here are some things, make sure you do this. And I'd like you to address the historical fiction as well. So if you want to combine them or do them separately, whatever you feel led to do, I think this is something our listeners would really benefit from. So I'll toss it over to you. Absolutely. And, you know, you learn by doing, you learn along the way. And so one of the things that happened uh, with the book Nobody Knows, the Harry T. Burley story, is that because I wrote it the way that I did, with filling in a couple of gaps uh, by you know doing the best research that I could and saying, okay, this could have been what happened, um, I made a mistake, and that mistake was not putting a disclaimer at the beginning of the book saying uh-huh. that this is a combination of narrative nonfiction and historical fiction And wherever possible, I sought to make this as close to the historical facts as possible. But there were a few places that, uh, because the historical record was lacking, uh, that we had to fill in the gaps. And as a result, there was one expert of, uh, you know, an academic expert of the life of Harry T. Burley, who kind of flamed me on Amazon. Uh, and um, the sad thing is, is that I had actually reached out to this person and asked that they look over the book and give me any feedback. And they never responded to me. I actually reached out to that person on more than one occasion. And then when the book came out, they flamed me. And mm. it was so unfair that my agent went after this person and said, hey, we tried to bring you in because you're an expert. You know, I had actually uh, included this person, information from this person's master's thesis and from other interviews and articles that they had done over the years as one of my many uh, sources uh, Mm. for this book. And I think I could have avoided that uh, whole situation had I put a disclaimer at the front of the book saying this information is the best information that I have been able to obtain. And I spent three years doing the research on that book. So, I mean, I did Mm. everything I could with the resources that I was able to obtain. 
But the problem with Burley, uh, especially back then, I mean, I wrote this in the late uh, 1990s and then in the early 2000s. And so the Internet was just starting to have deep resources back then. So I did a lot of interlibrary loan. I went to a lot of locations. I interviewed people who actually knew Burley uh, that were still alive because he had died in 1949. And some of these people were still alive in the late 90s. Um, they're all they've all passed away since then. But I did my best uh, with the resources that I had. And so uh, I would say, you know, if you're going to do something like that, Put a disclaimer out there. Even if you're doing historical fiction, you may want to do a, a bit of a disclaimer at the front to say that uh, this is based on historical facts and real events, but I've also created fictional characters within that, and so be aware of that. So that's something that I would definitely recommend to someone who wants to write in this genre. So something to definitely do is, I've already kind of touched on it, is that now with the internet having grown so much and having gotten to such a depth, there is a temptation to write books solely from, you know, historical type books, solely from the research that you do on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I would definitely recommend uh, that you don't do that. It's okay as, as part of your research, but the internet can have really great, credible stuff, but it also can have some real errors. YouTube videos can have some really wonderful stuff, but last night I was just drifting off to sleep and I had a YouTube video playing, and my, my two most recent books are, um, one is a biography about the last two years in the life of Ulysses S. Grant called Victor, The Final Battle of Ulysses S. Grant, and then a companion book called Forward, The Leadership Principles of Ulysses S. Grant. So I had had uh, YouTube on, and you know, I'm kind of drifting off, and you know how a YouTube video will end and it'll start a, a related video. Correct. And so this related video started, and I'm half awake, half asleep, and these two yahoos start talking about Ulysses S. Grant and they didn't know what they were talking about. And oh. it actually made me wake up. And I said out loud, you guys don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> because I spent really uh, more than a decade doing research on Grant, but then intensive research over the course of two and a half years and then writing the book. And I got to know Grant very well, but it wasn't just through the internet or YouTube videos. I read probably 20 other biographies, and I read several other books that kind of give a historical background uh, to Grant's life. But then the other really important thing for someone who's going to be involved in, in historical writing is you need to go to these locations. You can't just read about them or watch some video on YouTube. you got to go there. Mm. And so mm. I went to all of Grant's houses except for two. And the two that I didn't go to, one was because I didn't know about it until after I was well into writing the book. I actually planned to get to both of these locations at some point. 
And so that one was in New Jersey. And had I known about it, I was right there visiting a different Grant house at Long Branch, New Jersey. I could have easily went to this other house. I just didn't know about it at that time. And so I didn't get to that one. And then the other one that I didn't get to was in Galena, Illinois. Galena did not play at all into my book. And so I kind of, it was kind of like a triage type of thing where I said, you know, Galena's not in my book, so I don't really need to go there. So instead, I went to his farm, U.S. Grant's farm in St. Louis, Missouri, which is very much a part of the book. And uh, I learned so much being there. I went to Grant's home in New York City, which has been torn down, but I went to the location to just walk around and get a feel for what the location looked like. Um, and there are photographs of that home on the internet. I went to his summer cottage in Long Branch, New Jersey, which also has been torn down. But again, there are photos of it uh, on the internet. And so I was there walking around where the house would have been to kind of say, okay, this is where it was. And this is what he could have seen from there. But then the other really important place that my daughter and I went to was the um, the death place of Ulysses S. Grant. And I also went to his birthplace, his birthplace and his childhood home uh, in Ohio. But then I went to what is called Grant Cottage, which is on Mount McGregor, just right outside of Saratoga, New York. And everything in Grant Cottage is exactly the way it was the moment he died. Wow. So they put everything into the place where it was. The only thing that's a little different is that they, which is really interesting, they have some of the floral gifts that were given, you know, the big floral things that somehow they sprayed to preserve them. So they're all discolored, but you can see what they look like. And those are in the dining room. You know, these would have been flowers around the coffin that are still there. That's <laughs> which amazing. Is amazing. So yes. the bed where he died, um, the clock is stopped just a few minutes after his death where his son went over and stopped the clock. And that clock has never moved since that moment after his death. And then there's a big jar of cocaine water. And you say, what is cocaine water? Well, Grant was spending, and you'll see this in the book, uh, Victor, The Final Battle of Ulysses S. Grant. He spent the last year of his life writing his memoirs because he his business had gone bankrupt because of the unscrupulous work of his business partner who was running a giant Ponzi scheme. And so Grant went bankrupt, had no money to his name, and then within weeks found out he was dying of throat cancer. And mm. so in order to make sure that his wife was cared for after his death, he spent the last year of his life in excruciating pain with throat cancer writing his memoirs every day, and he wouldn't take morphine or opiates during the day because he needed to keep his mind clear to write the book. He would get morphine at night so that he could sleep, and sometimes they would give him injections of brandy and, and those kind of things uh, to help him. But during the day, he was in this terrible pain, and the only thing that would lighten the pain is every once in a while, they would spray his throat with water that was mixed with cocaine. And that would wow. deaden the pain for a little while. And so there is a huge glass jar, and the top is sealed with a glass seal. And at the bottom is all this white powder 
that over the last 150 years, as or 130 years, I'm sorry, because he died in 1885, that cocaine has settled to the bottom of the jar. And so I was able to see that. I was able to see the two leather chairs that they had put together face to face because he couldn't lie down to sleep because he would choke. And so he would sleep sitting up on these two leather chairs. And most of the day, they'd give him a writing board and he'd sit on the leather chairs and he would write. I saw those. And that, it, it gives you such a different feel when you're able to actually go to these places and get a view for what it is that you're reading in the books. So I would say if you're doing either historical fiction or narrative nonfiction or biography or memoir, you really need to go to those places to do that research. And I will tag on, folks, research, research, research. This is amazing when I hear the length of time that you've done your research. And we're talking multiple years here, folks. It's not just a, I think I'm going to write a narrative nonfiction or historical fiction. And I'll do, you know, a couple months of, of research. And then I'm just going to go and dive right in. Everything that I'm hearing from you, Craig, is truly that dedication to your writing, the dedication to making sure to the best of your ability, you have all the information that you can. And you're right. There's times that we don't learn something unless it's brought to our attention. And th that's not always the fun way to have it done. But from now on, <laughs> I'm, I know we'll have a disclaimer at the beginning of a book. And all of us will do that. Something we probably never even thought about, but that's what we need to have there. So this is, this is really good. And you have given us a lot to consider today a lot to consider. And I'm going to make sure, folks, that you have all the information you need in the show notes to find Craig and get access to his books and everything else. We're going to make sure that you have access to that as well. What fascinates you the most right now where you are in your writing, writing career? Uh, I am fascinated by seeing the hand of God in history. And it really actually has built my faith because, for example, uh, you had mentioned earlier about my book, I Am Cyrus, Harry S. Truman and the Rebirth of Israel. On that book, it was about five years of, well, it was four years of, of research and writing. And then the last year was editing and marketing and all that kind of stuff. So five years altogether. In that book, what I was trying to do and it's very timely in light of what's happening right now in Israel and Gaza, is I was trying to write a defense of the rebirth of Israel that could be would be so well documented that and also so hopefully well written and defended that it could be argued before the Supreme Court. That was my goal. But my secondary goal, and really probably equal goal, was to write it in a way that was readable, that people would want to read and keep turning the pages. Because writing about the rebirth of Israel is not something that you can do in 100 pages. My book was 300 pages, and there was more than 1,200 endnotes to give credibility 
to what I was saying. I didn't want to just say, this is what I think. I think this is what happened. No, I went and I dug deep, beginning with three days of research at the Harry S. Truman Library outside of Kansas City in Independence, Missouri. And then, again, reading 20, 30 biographies of Truman and all these books about the rebirth of Israel and about the conflict in the Middle East. I mean, years and years of research uh, for that. But in doing so, one of the things that just amazed me was to see that the majority of the time, there were not pro-Israel people in power in Great Britain. And even in the United States, they would either be neutral or not really pro-Israel. And I'm talking about in the the, my, big, my book begins in the 1880s and moves all the way up through the founding of Israel in 1948. What happened, though, is at the key critical moments when something had to be decided in favor of the Zionists, in favor of the Jewish people, and then later in favor of Israel, you would see leadership being shifted and you would see anti-Israel people going out and pro-Israel mm. people coming in. Uh, people who were either secular or were uh, just nominally Christian being pushed out and pro-Bible, pro-Christian, many evangelical come in. And so I'll give you an example. Just before when World War I broke out, there was an anti-Jewish prime minister. Uh, he was not necessarily uh, vehemently anti-Semitic. But he was he was your good old fashioned anti-Semitic guy. Uh, and, you know, in Europe at that time, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, just like we still see to this day. Mm -hmm. But a little time into World War One, he got pushed out of power and in comes Lloyd George, you know, who became the prime minister. And if you know anything about him, you know that he was homeschooled by a Bible believing evangelical mother. And he learned about the scriptures daily in his homeschooling. Mm. And so this pro-Israel, pro-Zionism, pro-Jewish prime minister comes in to power right at the time when the decision has to be made about whether or not Britain will support the founding and the rebirth of Israel in Palestine, which was not uh, you know, a terribly popular idea across the board. At right. the same time, the head of the foreign secretary uh, or the new foreign secretary was Arthur Balfour, evangelical, homeschooled Christian who learned the Bible at the feet of his mother. <laughs> at the same time, in comes Winston Churchill into the into the cabinet, wow. whose father's best friends were all Jews. And he died. His father died very young. And so all these Jewish friends gathered around his deathbed and said, uh, we promise that we will help to raise Winston Churchill. So Winston Churchill was raised primarily by these Jewish leaders in Great Britain. And this would oh, have been wow. the time of Disraeli and, and other British uh, Jewish leaders. The Jews in the 19th century, in the Victorian era, held a lot of power in that time. And they trained up Winston Churchill. And so Winston Churchill comes in, and he becomes the first Lord of the Admiralty, and he's pro-Jewish. And so when the Zionists, led by Heim Wiseman, came to the prime minister in the war cabinet and asked 
that they uh, allow that Palestine become the new Israel, all these people said, yes, of course, we all believe in that. They were what is called revisionists, meaning that they believed, or restorationists, I'm sorry, they believed that Israel needed to be restored to the promised land so that the Messiah would return. And they all voted not only for that, but because they also saw it as a very good move for the British Empire. So that would be my answer. Because, by the way, the president of the United States at that time, Woodrow Wilson, was the son of a Presbyterian pastor who also was a restorationist and went along with the Balfour Declaration. So God will move people and things and history as he needs to to have his will fulfilled. Amen and amen. And it gives us hope. It really does. It gives us hope. And what a great leave. This is this is so good. And talking about leave, what are you going to be leaving for our listeners today? I know you have something fun you'd like them to have a copy of. For anyone who's interested, you can download a free PDF chapter of my new book, Victor, The Final Battle of Ulysses S. Grant. I hope you enjoy it. And I think that they will. And plus, it gives them an opportunity to actually read what it is we've been discussing today. And that's how we learn. You want to know how to write something? Read in the genre that is written well so you can learn from it and apply as needed to your own writing. So this is very, very good. Thank you so much, Craig, for joining us here today on Your Best Writing Life. Linda, it has been very fun and a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. And thank you, friends, for joining us. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review because what you have to say matters as much as what you have to write. This is Linda Goldfarb, and I look forward to being here with you next time on Your Best Writing Life.